This young woman by the name of Mary had hidden the word of God in her heart since childhood. And when she was filled with the Holy Spirit of God, she was able to pour forth this song of praise from out of the treasure that was in her own heart. And her song of praise, commonly called the Magnificat, which means to magnify, is a brilliantly woven tapestry of scripture passages and truths from God's word. These would have been words that she heard and learned from an early age. Every young Israelite knew them by heart. These principal songs, the songs of Hannah, the songs of Deborah, the songs of David, they sang them from their earliest days on the Hebrew feast days in much the same way that we sing Christmas hymns, Thanksgiving hymns, and, and resurrection hymns today. And during her three or four day journey, 120 miles or so to Elizabeth's home, to the hill country of Judea, it's not unlikely that the pregnant, newly pregnant Mary meditated on the story of Hannah. Remember Hannah and her, her conception of Samuel? Because there is much of Hannah's song of praise that is also in Mary's hymn of praise. Mary quotes the song of Hannah. But we also must remember that in this, Mary was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And her hymn of praise became part of Holy Writ, as part of God's Word, right here. So as her experience is much like that of the prophets of old, where according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Mary's mind was full of Scripture, and the phrases that she uses are, are Scripture. It's called sacred phraseology. It drips with the words of God's Word. These words that she had heard both in the synagogue, she heard them in her home as she was growing up. So when the Holy Spirit came upon her, he took what she had and wove it into this wonderful, hallowed, tapestry. And Mary's hymn of praise also reflects her character, and it reflects her emotional response to God's mighty work in her life. It extends praise to God for his faithfulness to the righteous remnant down through history and for their future vindication. Her understanding of what God is doing now in her life causes her great joy, her faith rests in God, and acts on behalf, God acts on behalf of the righteous. To take care of them. So please look once again to Luke chapter 1 at verse 46. The 46th verse of this first chapter of Luke. And Mary begins her song by giving an unforgettable expression to the elevation of her soul. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Literally, Mary says, my soul makes great the Lord. My soul enlarges the Lord. It's the Latin translation, that famous phrase, the, the Magnificat anima mea dominum. That's why we call it the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul makes him bigger. Now, of course, we can't make God any bigger than he already is, right? He's already infinitely large in that regard. But God can be enlarged in our own lives, in our own hearts. He can be enlarged in our spirits and in our soul. 
We magnify or enlarge God when we take into our minds and into our thinking some new aspect of his greatness. Now, it's not new to him, but it's new to us. Some new aspect of his greatness. And, you know, that, and, and Mary's soul dwelt on the greatness of God here, that he would send his son to save people from their sins and what God was doing for his people. Mary had never seen God's so great as he now showed himself to be to her. And this is the same way we magnify the Lord. When we take into our mind, when we take into our thinking, some new aspect to us, as it were, of his greatness. For example, the Holy Spirit can open up a new enlargement of God when we just start really thinking about John 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Think about that, how that enlarges God in our soul. And of course, this season of the year, in that same first chapter of John, we had verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this is one of the reasons that it's important to meditate on Scripture, to give it prayerful thought, not only to hide it in our hearts, but to plumb the depths so that God will be enlarged in our souls. Because the fuller our knowledge of, our, of God, the greater our ability to enlarge Him. The fuller our knowledge of God, the greater our ability to enlarge Him. You know, who He is, what He has done, it's the greater our ability to magnify the Lord. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is in within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget what? None of His benefits. And we enlarge God. And so after Mary had heard and responded to the angel's announcement, and then she had her visitation with Elizabeth, she began to think bigger and grander thoughts about God than she had ever done before. And she not only enlarged the Lord with her mind and with her lips in praise, she did so with the passion of her whole being, soul and spirit. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices. She worshiped the Lord with the words of her lips and she worshiped the Lord in soul and spirit. It's a powerful way of saying, Mary saying, my total self all that I am, all that is in within me, all that I am magnifies and praises the Lord. And this is important, this is significant, because when Jesus began his ministry, he said, now this is the way things are going to work. And he proclaimed that this is true worshiper. Remember he said to the Samaritan woman at the well, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. By worshiping in spirit, it means the inner spirit, the inner person. God seeks people whose entire spirits, human spirits, are engaged in worship. 
You might remember the example of another woman by the name of Mary. Mary of Bethany. Jesus was at Mary and Martha's house and Lazarus' house, you know, just before he entered into Jerusalem. And Mary of Bethany took that priceless vial of perfume and broke the bottle. That's how you'd open it those days, a sealed bottle. And she anointed Jesus' head and feet, and she wiped them with her hair. And when the disciples of Jesus protested about the cost, Jesus responded, She has done a beautiful thing to me. Her entire human spirit was given over to the passionate worship of Jesus Christ. Worshipped in spirit and truth, no matter what anybody else around her thought about it, she was going to do what her spirit, what her soul did to worship Jesus. And in the same way, a thousand years before, King David had danced before the Ark of the Covenant, totally absorbed in worship, while others protested. Well, that's not appropriate for a king to do. Oh, look at that. You know, they just But David was totally given over to worshiping in spirit and truth. And he said in Psalm 108, My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing, I will sing praises, even with my soul. And God still desires today that we worship Him by making Him great with our entire soul and spirit, that we declare His greatness in praise. This must happen in our private devotions and when we praise God in our devotional life, but it's, it's also what God desires in our corporate worship together. Pastor Kent Hughes of Wheaton Bible Church writes, Congregational worship makes possible an intensity of magnification that does not occur as readily in individual worship. And then in explaining this, he shows a contrast. He says, on the tragic level, a mob tends to descend to a much deeper level of cruelty than individuals would by themselves. That's true, isn't it? So in contrast, he says, the appreciation and enjoyment of an informed group of music lovers at a symphony is more intense than that of a single listener at home. In a similar way, corporate worship provides a context where holy passion is joyously elevated and God's word comes to hearts with unique power. And Martin Luther spoke of this when he confided, At home in my own house, there's no warmth of vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. So now there are two parts to Mary's hymn of praise, the Magnificent, two stanzas as it were. In Mary's hymn of praise here in verses 48 through 50, she first gives personal reasons to why she magnifies the Lord. And then in verses 51 through 55, she gives prophetic reasons as to why her soul magnifies the Lord. First verse, we really say what it means to her. The, the second verse, it's what it, uh, it means to God and, and his kingdom and, and all that God does and says and, and is going to do for all eternity. So we see the first personal reason in verse 48. Why does her soul enlarge the Lord? Verse 48. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Now, as Mary's song here has a direct allusion to the petition of barren Hannah. Hannah, when she wept bitterly before the Lord because she was barren. And Hannah prayed, O Lord of hosts, 
if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant. Look on my affliction. The word translated affliction in the Greek Old Testament here is the same word translated humble estate in Mary's song. The exact same word. The, the humble estate was that of, of affliction. Look, look upon me. Look at what I'm going through and, and look at my humility, my humble estate. And so in heart, Mary was like Hannah of old, who humbly cast herself upon God as the only one who could help. God's the only one who can do this in, 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 the, in what I am going through and where I am at. And the Lord looked down upon Mary with loving care. The Lord saw in Mary somebody he could bless without going to her head, as it were, without making her proud. God could bless Mary because she was humble before the Lord. In Mary's eyes, in the eyes of the world, she was, she was no one special. She was no one special. She was to become the wife of a village carpenter in a town that everybody hated called Nazareth. Yet the God of Israel had chosen her as the mother of his incarnate son. Because the humiliation Mary's son would experience on the cross, God chose a humble couple living in humble circumstances. With the coming of God's son, the poor, the downtrodden, would have the opportunity to see light and find freedom from sin's bondage. So Mary's humble perspective forms the basis of her gratitude. And Mary is not bragging when she declares, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. She wasn't saying, hey, look at me, <laughs> you know, all generations. No, because she begins with, behold. It's, it's an explanation, exclamation of surprise. Wow, we would say. Get a load of this. It's a statement of wonder. It's a statement of the awesomeness of what God is doing in her life. And this is mind-boggling to this, this young teenager. Think of that simple young girl, Mary, in her obscurity, having flashed before her eyes the certainty that her name would be repeated generation after generation after generation as one who is blessed of God. Recognizing her blessing until the world's end, she here lays the honor at God's feet. And so in verses 49 and 50, we see Mary's personal celebration of what God has done. 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. And here Mary uplifts and sings of three divine perfections of God. His power, his holiness, and his eternal mercy. The first perfection of God that Mary proclaims is his power. The mighty one has done great things for me. You'll remember that Mary had experienced God's power at the conception when, she's, when it said... The power of the Most High overshadowed her. The power of the Most High. And here she uses the word, the Mighty One. Mary is thinking here of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where the Messiah's name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. There it is. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. His name shall be called Mighty God. El Gabor in the Hebrew. It means Mighty Hero God. This is the, 
a strong person, but it is also God who is mighty. It's one who performs heroic, mighty acts. And Mary's confession as the mighty one is that that what is impossible with men is possible with God. God does the impossible. God does the impossible because he is El Gabor. He makes dry wombs conceive. conceive. He removes hearts of stone and replaces them with living hearts. He raises the dead. And that's why we can say with the Apostle Paul, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Who else can bring salvation? Nobody else can bring salvation. Nobody can take else can take a heart of stone and replace it with a living heart still created in the image of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But notice that Mary also says, God has done great things for me. For me. Christianity is a very personal relationship between God and his child. God's work is not abstract or or theoretical, but it's real and it's personal. So let me ask just some questions for you to think about here for, for just a little bit. Is your relationship to Jesus Christ, is your salvation experience, in all of that, can you honestly say, for me? Jesus died for me. Jesus gave his life for me. When he hung on the cross, it was for me. When he rose from the grave, it was for me. When he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he makes intercession, Is it for for me? Do you know what the mighty God has done for you personally? Just for you. Was your salvation experience real or personal or is it only abstract and theoretical? And Mary also proclaims God's holiness. Holy is his name. We saw that in Psalm 103 this morning in, in the Sunday school class. Gabriel had told Mary that the child to be born would be called Holy, the Son of God. Because the Almighty God has worked in this pure, set-apart, and sinless way, His name would be recognized as Holy, completely set apart from sinless, from sinfulness. Completely set apart from sin. Holy, in the Hebrew it's Gadosh. It describes the sinlessness of God. The three... Seraphim surround the throne of God and surround God and they cry out, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Holiness to the third power, ultimate holiness. Lifted high above all creation, lifted high above above man's fallenness and sin. He is uniquely holy, infinitely exalted. He is transcendent. Then Mary praises God for his mercy to her. His mercy. From verse 50 on, Mary's words are mostly almost direct quotations from the Old Testament, but with new application and meaning to us. Not only does Mary exalt God's power and holiness, but he also lifts up 
His mercy. Verse 50. And His mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear Him. It comes from Psalm 103, verse 17. Mary's song now begins to transition from the end, her individual response now to the corporate, what the response should be of all people, from what she herself had personally experienced to what God offers from one generation to another through the course of history and into eternity. Like he did with Mary, God has always reached down in mercy to the devout humble in each generation. And in verse 50, we see a qualification here for God's mercy. That's something that we don't often think of this way. God's mercy here is available to the reverent or to those who, what? Fear him. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards who? Those who fear him. Those who in heart and mind are filled with worshipful or devout regard for God. Like Mary, these are genuinely God-fearing and pure-in-heart people. Now, Scripture is clear, of course, that God, He doesn't withhold His loving kindness or His love or His common grace, we call it, where God extends a certain amount of grace upon the whole world. If He didn't, in a flash, we'd just destroy ourselves. And so there's what's called common grace. And, and uh, He gives His kindness and His love and His mercy upon all in the way that, that he chooses, but what it's saying here is that he reserves special consideration, special mercy for those who fear him. These are those who bow before his holiness and marvel at his kindness. These, who, these are those who humbly worship him in spirit and in truth, and to those God gives a special mercy. And having given her personal reasons for magnifying God, in verse 51, Mary gives what are called prophetic reasons. The second half of the Magnificat, the second stanza of Mary's hymn of praise, is all prophecy in the past tense. God has performed. God has scattered. He has brought down. He has lifted up. He has filled. He has helped. Now, in Scripture, this is called the prophetic past tense. And you go, okay, what's that? The prophetic past tense is it views having already accomplished in the past the future work of God. When you read Isaiah, for example, you'll read that Babylon has already fallen. It has already collapsed. It has already done in. Egypt has done the same thing. It's already accomplished fact, even though if you looked at it historically, it hasn't happened yet. And then you get the book of Revelation and you see it all again. Babylon has fallen and everything's collapsed and those kind of things. And what it does here, the prophetic past tense says, it is so sure to happen that it's already given as it has happened. What God will do in the future is so sure and certain that it's viewed as accomplished in the past. And what Mary does here is she's born along by the Holy Spirit as she points to the effects of what we could call a reversal of things. That this reversal is going to take through the work of the Son that is to be born to her. Mary could look to see how God has worked in the past to show this is how the Son of glory, the Son of God, how things are going to work now through, through Jesus Christ, to the one who is to be born from her. These are reversals that God will bring about in people's lives 
be on account of Jesus coming into the world. And first of all, on account of Jesus coming into the world, there's going to be a moral reversal, a moral reversal. Verse 51, this is what God is going to do on account of Christ's coming. In past tense, she says, He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of her heart. The mighty one who worked humble, hum, worked in humble Mary also acts upon the thoughts of men, as verse 51 says here. And the thought here describes the future work of God's Son as continuing God's past work of how God works. As he did in the past, he will again do this through the work of his Son. It says his, his mighty arm, God's arm represents his might or his, or his strength. It can be used to, to strongly support and uphold. It can also be used, God's arm can also be used to bring down and drive out. In God's time, he supports the faithful, humble, and he frustrates the proud. He supports the faithful, humble, and he frustrates the proud. And who are the proud? The proud are those who do not fear God. The proud are those who are not hungry for God's righteousness. The proud are those who are not poor in spirit. They are the strutting proud. They are the bragging proud. They are the arrogant. They are the conceited. And we're going to see in verse 52 in a little bit that God stands against the proud to overturn their political power and their position. The salvation Jesus brings to the humble also brings judgment to the proud. Now it says the innermost thoughts, the thoughts of the heart, that describes once again the hidden place or center of a person's reasoning power. The hidden imaginations of our hearts reveal who we are, don't they? Which is open before God. It's all seeing eyes. And the contrast between the humble and the haughty continues in verse 52, where we see what we could call a social reversal. Verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. The same judgment of God, the changed work of God that exalts the humble brings down rulers from their thrones. Now, in the past, certainly Mary had in mind Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He was the incredibly conceited ruler of Babylon. And one day he goes on top of the, the wall of Babylon and look at, look at everything I've done. This is what I've done. You know, the walls of Babylon were wide enough to race four chariots at one time uh, on top of the wall, if they chose, chose to do, though. But he was brought down by the mighty arm of God. So he just grazed like a cow for seven years. His hair and his beard grew so long that it fell over him like eagle's feathers. His nails, as a result of grubbing in the ground, toughened and grew thick as, as talons. Mary also probably had in mind the great axe and hubris of Belshazzar, who thought that he was invincible to the armies of the Medes and Persians who were camped right outside the walls of Babylon. So he held a great feast to celebrate his greatness. And then he saw the writing on the wall, which he had Daniel, the prophet, come and interpret for him. And Daniel was summoned and interpreted the message. And Daniel told Belshazzar, Now this is the inscription that was written out, Many, many, tekel aparsan. And he says, Daniel says, This is the interpretation of the message. Many. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. 
Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. That same night, Belshazzar the king was slain. The Lord God has brought down proud rulers from their thrones, and on account of Jesus coming into this world, the Lord will bring proud rulers down from their thrones, and he will exalt those who are humble. And then on account of the Messiah's son, there is a material spiritual reversal, we could call it. Verse 53. He has given help to... No, verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. The Old Testament history in which Mary glanced back records the connection between one's material state and their spiritual state. The connection. For example, the song of Hannah on which Mary had been meditating on and quoting speaks to this connection. In her song, Mary or Hannah declared in 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 7 and 8, "The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of, a seat of honor." For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. Mary's statement that the Lord has filled the hungry with good things is a direct quote from Psalm 107, verse 9. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Over and over again, the Old Testament encourages spiritual hunger. Did you think about that? Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. I will seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. And then Psalm 42, verses 1 through 2 that we're familiar with. As the deer pants for the water brooks, my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God. And here is the key point. Spiritual hunger is the Old Testament prescription for spiritual health. And it still is today. Spiritual hunger is the Old Testament prescription for spiritual health. If you don't have a hunger for the food that nourishes you and gives you health and you keep eating that junk food, what is this prescription? Have a hunger for the right stuff. You want to be spiritually healthy, it begins with spiritual hunger. Because those who are already full with whatever it is, and therefore imagine amongst themselves that they are sufficient, but they are in fact desperately needy. You see, self-sufficiency has a damning effect. The rich young ruler missed Christ altogether, not just because he wouldn't get rid of the things that he owned and followed Jesus, but simply because he wasn't hungry enough. He wasn't hungry enough for spiritual things. His desire for the material that he couldn't get rid of had dulled his budding spiritual appetite. He had a little bit of an appetite when he came to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I want to know. But when he found out what it was, he said, I'm not that hungry. I'm not getting rid of this stuff. And the rich man was sent away empty, it says. Even though he had all this stuff, he was, he was empty. And the resurrected Christ later explained to the Laodicean Christians in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, 
Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So when Mary declares that the Lord has filled the hungry with good things, it's a declaration that the Son of God offers complete satisfaction for hunger and thirst. And that's what Jesus said. Whoever drinks of the water I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become to him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And he also said, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me shall what? Never thirst. And this filling is not just for now, but it's for eternity. One day as the bride of Christ, the church in eternity will sit with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And just as Jesus said, And as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And then in verses 54 and 55 of Mary's hymn, she looks to God's eternal mercy. She goes back to God's covenant promise to Israel, first stated in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God told Abraham, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Mary sang of its fulfillment in the prophetic past. She says in verse 54, He has given help to Israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and his descendants forever. His descendants forever. God's covenant is a forever done deal. There won't be any reneging. There won't be any renegotiating uh, the conditions of the contract. It's done. When God gave the covenant to Abraham, it was done for all of us for all eternity because the remarkable thing is that we are the spiritual seed of Abraham through faith meaning that God's covenant mercy extends to us who are in Christ forever and ever. God's mercy is an accomplished fact. Now Mary was aware that the birth of Christ was a fulfillment of the covenant promises to Abraham and his descendants. The blessed seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ, God's one and only Messiah, who would give his sinless life, his perfect sinless life, so that all would be saved. And that offer and that promise still stands today. For the true descendants of Abraham are those who live their life based upon faith in God and his promises. The God who has helped his people so often in their past distresses and captivities because of his covenant with them was coming to offer them and all of mankind the salvation and deliverance that he brought. And that's an invitation that still extends us to us today. I almost put in my notes as we go to verse 56. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. Have you heard that before? Because the passage concludes with verse 56. You know, we've all had those experiences where we've had an awesome awareness of God and who he is and his bigness. And then we go home. <laughs> 
And we've got to explain this to, to those around us who have no idea of why, man, why, why is that, that, that shining in your eyes, as it were, that, that glow on your face, such as, as Moses had. And it says in, in verse 56, And Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her home. <laughs> For about three months, apparently until John was born. Mary then returned home, back to Nazareth, back to the home of her parents. Her pregnancy would be showing when she returned home, and she would be the object of ridicule, accusation, ostracization, if that's a word. She would be ostracized. But Mary would say, let the people say what they would, because she was willing to be a disgrace in order to become an object, an instrument of God's grace. Shall we pray? Father, I pray that there is just something from your word this morning, Lord, in each one of our hearts, from your word as we take them to our own hearts, Father, that would enlarge you, make you greater, magnify you, Lord, and in a way that we didn't have when we came into this place this morning, Father. And I just pray that that will carry on into our, our daily lives, whatever our, our schedule is this afternoon, whatever we do typically on a Sunday afternoon and, and the rest of the week, especially as we're preparing for the, the great celebrations of, of celebrating Christ coming into this world as, as a baby, Lord. I, I just pray that... Uh, this morning, beginning this morning and continuing through this season, Lord, that you'll just show us one thing after another from your word for which you would enlarge yourself before us, Father, that we might magnify your name. And Father, I pray for our worship service coming this next Sunday, Christmas Sunday, Lord, that as we come once again next week, having gone through the daily stuff, meanwhile back at the ranch all week long, Lord, that we will come together in corporate worship next week. And Lord, that you would be made great among us again. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.